welcome to the Fiery Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, this is Joshua David Stein, host of the Fatherly Podcast, the perfect podcast for the imperfect parent. It's not every day you get to talk to a guy who has an effect named after him. But Christian Doppler's out of the picture, and that leaves us with Ken Burns, America's best-known documentarian. According to iPhoto, the Ken Burns effect is zooming in slowly on a still image. To me, the Ken Burns effect is wrestling the mass of history into some coherent order, weaving in stories we know and stories never told, then presenting this in an artful, resonant way so that we watching feel the past pressing on us towards the future. So it was with Burns' greatest documentaries, The Civil War, The War about World War II, Jazz, Baseball, and now with The Vietnam War, a devastating 18-hour, 10-episode documentary he directed with longtime collaborator Lynn Novick. It's streaming on PBS. Ken is many things. A filmmaker, a father of four daughters, a citizen unafraid to hold his country to account, a still-morning son, a not-half-bad chef. He makes a mean grilled chicken thigh. But what I learned speaking to him is that he's a keen observer of human nature and someone who has dwelt deeply on matters that affect all fathers and sons and wives and mothers and sisters, anyone capable of kindness and therefore evil, anyone capable of love and therefore heartbreak. I talked to him about watching his latest series as my son slept in the other room, wondering if they would be headed to war and what I could or should do about it. Well, hi, Ken Burns. How's it going? It's going pretty well today. Last night, I finished your new film, The Vietnam War, and I was home alone. So my, uh, my sons were in their room, and I was watching in the living room, and they could hear the gunshots. And my five-year-old got up, and he's like, Daddy, why are you playing video games? That's what he thought I was playing. And it occurred to me watching that how far away from war we are. We are. Yeah. And my sons. In our editing room, we had an intern named Frank one semester, and we were screening the sixth episode of Vietnam uh, about the Tet Offensive, which is perhaps the most immersive of all of the episodes in terms of being in battle for a kind of excruciating, sustained period of time, which is pretty reflective of what the Tet Offensive was. And um, in it is the famous moment when captured by a Pulitzer Prize-winning a photograph and and by an NBC cameraman of the head of the South Vietnamese National Police assassinating right there on the street a suspected Viet Cong spy. And it's one of the classic images from Vietnam, still images, and the footage is little known. And afterwards it was really clear and we were it was an internal screening that we were debriefing only among ourselves, the 20, 25 people who were part of the editing team and the producing team. And we usually sort of start at the top producers and other editors rather than the, and work our way down. But something I just started from the interns and went up. Who are and generally younger than the... They're 19, 20. You know, and it's, it's interesting. I'm 64 years old and I know nothing. But I do remember that when I was 19, 20, and 21, I knew everything. And I always think it's pretty good to call on people who know everything. Yeah. So I called on Frank, who seemed visibly upset. And he said, you know, I've grown up with violent images uh, in, on TV and the movies, in graphic novels and comic books, uh, but of course in the video games. And then he started to cry. He says, but that guy is dead, isn't he? And I said, yes, he's dead. And I, I just, I still think to that day it's one of the best reviews 
I've ever had is that somebody who is supposed to be completely inured to all of this, somebody who is um, sort of has grown up with a life filled with violent images could nonetheless discern, as most of the rest of us can, between the sort of made up, the dramatic and the horrific and the real. I know you've done a ton of interviews about this. I'm a father. This is a father. You know, it's a fatherly podcast. I should say that. Welcome to the fatherly podcast. But I'm all for fatherhood. It's a good. It's a good gig if you can get it. It's a good, really good gig. You know, I, I told my friends who don't have kids that it's parenthood is the largest, but also the most exclusive club on earth. Yeah, I would say this is the first Ken Burns joint I've seen since having kids. They're five and four. It was the most difficult for me to watch I'm sure. because. I was sorry that you were watching alone because we sort of counseled all of our friends and loved ones to watch with somebody they love because it's it's tough. It was tough for us to make and tough for us to see a hundred times, yeah. let alone one time. I get that one-time business. And I met somebody dropping my kid off at school today who was a father who had just finished episode 10 last night. And I said, did you cry? He goes, when? All the time. You know? Yeah. Because for me, I'm thinking... You're a father four times over, correct? Yeah, luckily so, all girls. But I was thinking, the, the documentary is so clear from Mogi uh, Crocker, who is a GI that you follow and almost devote a whole episode. A couple of episodes too, yeah. And you tell the war through his eyes and through his personal stories. But beyond just him, just every person you see in that is someone's son or daughter, someone's mother or someone's father, someone's sibling. And to have two kids, I had my two kids in the bedroom just a couple of feet away from me, to know that they might face that. Exactly. You had said something in one of the interviews about the draft, and that's what I kept on thinking about the the entire time. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your viewpoints on that. So I grew up in the 1960s, and when every male turned 18, you had to register for the draft to tell the United States government that you were available for possible military service. And in the beginning of the Vietnam War in the 60s, when I was way too young, the burden fell disproportionately on the poor and minorities um, because you could get a variety of deferments that would allow you, short of a legitimate medical deferment, to get out of it, to be in college, to be married, you know. As the war went on and the meat grinding aspect of it sickeningly continued, uh, you had to be doing well in school. And then finally there was a sort of uproar about how fair this was and how much it burdened. So they returned to a much fairer lottery system based on your birthday. So you pick birthdays out of a hat and then you're numbered. And, you know, the lower the number, the bigger gulp chances you were of going. And gulp, too, because by that time, that it was instituted, the popularity of the war had really declined. Uh, America's support for it at home had really declined. The anti-war movement had grown exponentially. And, and by then, a majority of American citizens had really wished that we hadn't gotten in there. And those two things are related, too, because mm-hmm. as, as the meat grinder wore on, there was more of a chance of going, and it became more and more unpopular. That's right. It got so, closer and closer to home. So, you know, as it the war was was beginning to wind down. Nixon had very shrewdly sort of done this lottery thing, very shrewdly and and very correctly. Uh, But then he also knew that he could blunt the anti-war movement by bringing some troops home and doing what 
the reason why we put boots on the ground there, which is let the South Vietnamese do it by themselves. Well, the South Vietnamese couldn't do it by themselves, and that's why ostensibly we put boots on the ground. So there was a kind of fatalistic stuff, and at that point the army particularly really changes into an army that's not got their heart in the fight, and you see interviews with soldiers who haven't been in country for six months and haven't fired their gun in anger. And so it's a really complicated thing. And I remember that for me and my friends, it was this existential question, what are you going to do? You know, the war that most of us didn't believe in by then, most of the country didn't believe in by then. You know, you had some options. Could you get a conscientious objector status? Probably not. It really required an underpinning of, of religious and philosophical stuff that I, I couldn't really prove. It wasn't way. enough to say, I don't want to kill other people. It's not enough to say, I don't want to kill other people. There had to be some extremely serious sort of structure in your life, both religious and or philosophical, that would would permit that to happen. And then you were looking at jail or Canada. And then it's, it's big, big heavy-duty stuff. And as it turned out, my draft number and the last time they picked it was high enough that I knew I wasn't. By then, if I'd actually spent more attention, I had just gone to college, so it was more focused on college than on, on the news. If I had spent more time understanding what was really going on, that we had most of the combat troops were heading out of there. And so even if I had been drafted, there was probably um, little chance that I would see combat. But nonetheless, I, I actually you know, had to wrestle with these things. And my kids talk about it. They, they sort of can't believe. And we're in a, a situation, and I, and I sort of, and I don't want to infer where your questioning is going, but we always talk about the lessons of war. Human beings never learn the lessons of war for very long. Sometimes they do temporarily. The first Gulf War is a good example of some military lessons applied, you know, know the objective, know the end, know the beginning, what you're going to do. And they did it pretty well. And it was all designed by soldiers who'd been through Vietnam and didn't like that experience, thought we screwed up big time. And so they weren't going to do that again. But the larger things, we're not going to blame the warriors. That's probably the one thing that will stick. But the other things are a lot subtler. You know, we got rid of the draft. And what that meant is that we have this celebrated all-volunteer army, which means no longer do the American people have skin in the game. There's like 1% of the population it suffers its losses apart and alone from the rest of us. And so that makes it possible to sustain wars for a long, long time. We're in Afghanistan longer than anything. And um, that's troubling because if you have a draft, then at least you have pressure on your representatives from mothers particularly, but also fathers, saying, you know, this is not a good thing to do. And so I think that if I could design stuff, I I would want to reinstitute a draft and I'd want to make sure that any significant action had the approval of Congress the way Constitution dictates. Yes, it should be. That hasn't happened to us since the um, Second World War where there's been an actual declaration of war. We've had resolutions that have given, handed over, ceded to the executive sort of the carte blanche to do whatever you want. And we understand in the nuclear age, you want a little bit of instantaneous reactive ability, but you don't want to make Depends who has a football, but yeah. Yeah. For me as a father, I have those two kids. I have two sons. I agree so strongly with the premise that you need skin in the game in a wider cross-section of society. Just generally, you need more skin in the game. I need more skin in the game. And at the same time, watching Vietnam or understanding any of it, 
you have the people who were killed, and then you have those interviews of the both Vietnamese and American troops. And there was a one guy, I think his name's John Musgraves, mm-hmm. and he went to war as a teenager, as a young man. He carries Gung a, Ho, yeah. And he carries those wounds with him. He's an old man now, and he carries those wounds with him, and that really a, it changed his life. Mm-hmm. He, he's a lucky one. He's someone who survived. The idea of sending my son or even exposing my sons to that and advocating for a policy which might lead to that, on the other hand, it makes it less likely that it would happen, but if it does happen, it's more likely they would go. It really gets at this dilemma as a dad. It's like, to whom am I responsible? Right. My sons, certainly in an immediate way, but I'm also a citizen, and they're citizens. And beyond citizenry, there's one stat at the end just comes up on the screen quickly. Not quickly. Very, very... Stately. S- stately. Yeah. Ken Burnsish. <laughs> it's Ken Burnsian. Yeah. It's something like... Um, 55,000 American troops died, 2 million Vietnamese citizens. Yeah, now the, and that was just not through the film. It's 3 million Vietnamese, we think, and 58,000-plus Americans. The other thing that I thought the movie does such a wonderful job of is showing that there's a death and then there's a fracture. Like a, in a window pane, there's a bullet hole, and then it cracks everything. The right. Crocker family yeah. shattered. Everything changes. So the costs are dispersed and so massive, and yet I have all of my love like a, um, you know, like a magnifying glass. You have the sun coming through, and it Mm -hmm. focuses on this little creature. So this is, um, you know, people are fond of saying that history repeats itself or we're condemned to repeat what we don't remember, which are lovely, but not true. Not true. Everything's different. Everything's different. And um, people don't remember all the time, and they're not condemned necessarily to repeat it. But human nature remains the same. And I'm really sorry to report, particularly as a father to another father, that human beings are never not going to settle things with violence collectively in what we call wars. In all of human history, I don't think there's ever been a, a year free of war. Apparently there were historians who studied this and they found 17 years. And I, I sort of wanted to send them back and say, look harder, because yeah. I'm sure there's something going on somewhere. Um one of our Marines, not, not John Musgrave, but uh, Carl Marlantis in the film says, we're not the dominant species in the planet because we're nice. Yeah. And people always complain that the military makes uh, uh, killing machines out of, uh, out of young men. And I would suggest that it's only finishing school, which is a horrific indictment. So I think what, what it goes down to are, are really profound moral and spiritual existential decisions that we have to make. Um, Obviously, we love our country. Um, Vietnam, maybe we should take it out of the equation for a second because it's on the other side of the world. It's a peculiar phenomenon of that time in the Cold War where it was better to have a proxy war, we thought, or, you know, a a limited war, as John F. Kennedy called it, rather than the thermonuclear winter that would be uh, created by the Third World War. But we seem to have found ourselves in perpetual warfare again. And so it's a real dilemma. Uh, How do you serve your country? How do you support it? If it's under attack, like World War II is often called the good war, which is insane because it's the worst war ever, 60 million lives extinguished. So we called the first episode of our film on the Second World War, which was called Just the War, um, the first episode was called Unnecessary War. 
because sometimes it looks like we're predisposed as human beings. So then it falls back on you and me as dads. Do we let our sons even fight in a necessary war? I have a feeling that what you're saying is that whether war is necessary or unnecessary, because the first episodes of this series as well, I have just like an asphyxiating sense of you, it's wrong. It's a mistake. And of course it happened. It's wrong. And you, yeah. it, it's like this. The sign says bridge out, but we're driving blithely into the, the abyss. And that's exactly how it felt watching. But you're also saying that whether it's necessary or unnecessary, it's inevitable. Not in any particular case is it inevitable, but I think in the central thing about human behavior, wars are going to be inevitable. We're not going to change human nature. At least it doesn't seem that that kind of evolution, which we would call intellectual or emotional or spiritual evolution, is going to take place in our lifetime and in our children's lifetime. So we got to be faced with it. And then the question is, are you a pacifist? Are you, have, can you find the moral and philosophical and, and religious spiritual grounds to just say no to it, to be truly a pacifist who cannot join in any effort? And then you have to go back to, I'm sitting alone watching this documentary on public broadcasting. My two sons, who I love more than my life itself, are asleep in the bed, and a bad person is attacking my house. Do you go to war? to save your sons? And the answer is, of course, yes. And you would give up your life to to save your sons. You said that history doesn't repeat itself. I understand that. I think it's impossible to watch those 10 hours and not think about where we are now. So I can help you. Please. Um, I can take uh, an ancient source, Ecclesiastes, which said, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun, which means human nature doesn't change. It just superimposes itself over the random chaos of events. Mark Twain is supposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> so what you're talking about, what you're feeling, it's not talking about, it's feeling, are those rhymes, the ghosts, the echoes, the patterns, the motifs that... Um, recur and occur. So I could have started this conversation and said to you, you know, I've just, I've spent a long time, a decade, working on a film about mass demonstrations taking place against, all across the country, against the President of the United States, uh, about a White House in disarray, obsessed with leaks, about a president certain the press is lying, making up stories about him, about asymmetrical warfare that's, you know, really challenging the mighty might of the United States military, about a huge document drop of stolen classified material into the public sphere that's destabilizing everything, and accusations that a political campaign reached out during a time of a national election to a foreign power to affect that election. And you would say, you've abandoned history, Ken. I thought we're going to talk about the Vietnam War. This is all about now. And I said, those were all about the Vietnam War, and they were all about the Vietnam War when I started this in 2006, when those things wouldn't have echoed, wouldn't have rhymed quite as precisely. There would have been another set of rhymes had I finished in 2006. But this is why— Not to push it too much, but, you know, one of the wonderful things about poets and poetry is you can choose your rhymes. And That's there's exactly a lot of different right. schemes, and there's a lot of different words. So in my game, it's less the choosing of the rhymes than trying to collect— as much about the facts, the chronology as possible, have that endowed with the testimony of so-called ordinary people and permit a wonderful tension between 
bottom-up and top-down conversation. And in the case of Vietnam, the top-down is skewed by the fact that we have intimate recordings of those people that makes Kennedy, but most importantly, Johnson and Nixon seem really human and ordinary and pedestrian, and, and you get to see their inner thoughts the way some of our witnesses are willing to share. So all of that's there, and it's not so much choosing the rhyme scheme, this is going to be a sonnet or a haiku, or this is going to be ABAB or ABC or whatever the rhyme scheme is. It's that you, you, you see that in the collection and the organization of this material, which is not additive but subtractive. You know, you've got it maybe 18 hours long, but I started off with 50, 60 times that amount yeah. of material in order to whittle down that what we're trying to do is permit the material to speak, the story to be accurate, and then to create space for all these other perspectives, North Vietnamese soldiers, South Vietnamese soldiers, civilians on both sides there, as well as the range of American stuff, and then see what it is. And you begin, then you lift your head up and you go, oh my goodness, as all of the films. I could, I could do a rap on every single film I've worked on for the last 40 years that rhymes with the present. I'm trying to figure out a way to talk about patriotism and the country to my kids. They're, they're quite young still, but uh, my son the other day said, wait, which war was America bad in? World War One and World War Two, And I was like, I was thinking what he meant. And then I realized he was thinking about Vietnam. Vietnam, yeah. So I explained a little mm-hmm. bit Vietnam. But obviously I don't want to raise a, a someone who doesn't love this country. I yeah. love this country. I Can I tell you, I don't, I've never met anyone who loves his or her country more than I love the country. And I can be critical of it and I can hold its feet to the fire in the case of Vietnam for what is pretty clearly universally acknowledged wrongful policy or our or, or abhorrent uh, record on race and, and other things. And that's a, a theme that is recurring in all my work. But I love my country. What I want to communicate to my son is what you have in your film as sort of the anti-war protesters and that they did make a difference. Yeah. And yesterday I was watching the soldiers throw back their medals and then I was thinking about John Musgraves, who went home, and his dad said, they would have to come after you, me and right. you, because that's your medal, and you yeah, did if that. If they're going to jack with us, let's, let's have it out on the driveway. Yeah. And his dad, who was opposed to him throwing away the medal, suddenly realized, well, that's, you know, this is why we get into wars anyway, which because it's tribal. Yeah. Right? Our civilized nature abhors war. It interrupts trade. It interrupts lives. It doesn't allow us to refine those lives, to enjoy music and conversation, good food, to, to, to grow all the things that our founding fathers thought we would grow if we could take care of this politics business and then the commerce business. It would all be about art and music and yes. all that sort of stuff. But constantly, they're constantly the tribal instincts uh, interpose and uh, and even John Musgrave and his dad are standing in the driveway fending off that is is a manifestation of that. What's interesting about that is that was a really touching moment yeah, to me beautiful. as a father and son. And I want to communicate to my son the c- type of complex love that you have for your country. And I think all patriots, true patriots have. That's right. Where they were thinking about the other day. Hugging something also means holding it accountable. That's exactly right. Well, you know, the, the famous phrase that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel meaning that that kind of patriotism is one-dimensional, unquestioning, accepting, and usually wrong. And, and what we know is that 
in all things, it's possible for there to be more than one side to the equation. And that when you're an absolutist in your hardened silos left or right, you've lost the possibility to communicate with the other because your certainty is a kind of toxic death. Yeah. And that and blindness. What, and blindness. And so what the best thing we can communicate to our kids is the absence of distinct black and whiteness, the, the, the parsing of those shades of gray, and the idea, as Wynton Marsalis said to me in my jazz film, talking about minstrelsy, he said that sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. And if you can hold intention that, you have a much happier life, you have much richer relationships, you're more forgiving, and you may be able to be, I think, a better patriot. Because if we are the greatest country on earth, as the the scoundrels of patriotism suggest, then we have to hold ourselves to the highest possible standards. That, that If that exceptionalism is in fact true, then that exceptionalism has to be borne out in behavior after behavior after behavior. And that does not tolerate um, boorishness of any kind. It does, it, it's got to be uh, a rising road. And, and so I've tried to be about what that rising road is. I've tried to suggest even, I, I do believe it is the obligation of the artist to show hell on earth. Um, I also think it's the obligation of the artist, and I do have friends who disagree with me on this. I, I do sincerely believe that it is the obligation of the artist to show the way out. To, to really say, here's the off-ramp, or here's... That's a heavy burden for the artist. Uh, it, yeah, but I think it's a necessary one because it acknowledges this, this sort of the duality of the universe and, and the requirement to balance this out. Uh, it is not enough. There's been some criticism from the far, far left that we have the second sentence of the film begins, that the war was begun in good faith by decent people. And they just said, that's it, I'm turning off the set. And you go... So when we parachuted in and saved Ho Chi Minh's life and he said, I'm going to switch the name of my army, my revolutionary army that's trying to throw off the Japanese and uh, the Viet-American army, and that when he declared Vietnamese independence citing Thomas Jefferson, those aren't people acting in good faith and aren't decent. And you meet throughout the film, I don't think you, we've introduced you to somebody that isn't decent in this film. That is one of the crushing parts to me, is you see this soft moment before everything goes hard and sideways. That's right. The, the, the operative word is, it was begun, begun yeah. in good faith by decent people. I, I stand by that. And those who want to say, oh, it's just the military-industrial complex, yeah, that's true. But you know what? You're now having to say that these are not good people. Everybody you need to condemn in order to be certain in your binary world where everything is either red state or blue straight, right or wrong, young yeah. or old, rich or poor, gay or straight, whatever it is. And I'm sorry, it, it, it's, it's all in between. Did you start as a young man making films, even before you made films just growing up, with this complicated, complex patriotism? Is that something that developed through making your documentaries? Did you... Have, has your journey been holding America more and more accountable, or has that been a constant? That's a really great question. Um, Bob Dylan has a line in my back pages, Ah, but I was so much older then, I'm, I'm younger, younger than, than that, that now. 
you know, back when I knew everything, I think I had a pretty uh, sophisticated and nuanced sense of it, um, but I didn't really know how to apply it. And, and, I, and I think that I feel so fortunate that I knew early on, 12, I wanted to be a filmmaker, 19, 20, I wanted to be documentary filmmaker, 22, 23 in American history. Things lined up for me in a particular way. So the practice, and it's all been practice ever since, has been a kind of refinement of that complexity. But I've always known that there needed to be undertow, that, that heroism wasn't perfection as our media culture suggests it is today. And as soon as we find out that there's a negative aspect to somebody, we, we throw them out. That in fact, as the Greeks have told us who invented the, the notion of heroism, that it is a negotiation between a person's strength and maybe not as obvious weaknesses, that Achilles had his hubris and his heel along with his great strength. And so it's actually, heroism is actually the negotiation, sometimes the war between those things. And that's, to me, very interesting. And I, I think I sort of in a gut knew it a little bit. I, I don't think I kind of practiced it with any refinement or elegance early on, but I, I've been going along. You know, I, it's funny that you asked that. I, I was working on the update of our film on baseball called The Tenth Inning that came out in 2010. So this must have been 2008, 2009. I was interviewing uh, Tom Boswell who I'd interviewed for the first big baseball series. Um, and I was asking him about steroids and how we dealt with this thing, you know, because I love baseball almost as much as I love my country. And he said, well, Keats wrote this letter about William Shakespeare, saying that William Shakespeare had what Ke Keats called negative capability, this ability to hold in tension both the negative and positive traits of someone and that the moralist in us wants to judge and say this is a good person, this is a bad right. person to clean it up, the mess of life, the random chaos of stuff. But Shakespeare said, no, 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 hold that judgment for as long as you can, you know, yeah. so that you could see even in Richard III, one of the great villains, some humanity that, that you could find um, in even the, the, the best hero, some complexity and doubt and angst. And I realized that he had spoken for what I thought I had been trying to do, but by giving it a sense of negative capability or Winton and Jazz saying a thing in the opposite of things. So I've been surrounding myself with, um, you know, a posse of intelligent men or, and women who have given me little pearls along the way that have helped refine and I hope make more elegant kind of the um, complexity that I think has I've always known has been there. I mean, you're trying to erode the duality a little bit. So the reason why I'm a filmmaker is because my dad was an amateur still photographer. My first memory is in the dark room with him. But my mom was sick with cancer that whole time for 10 years, and I watched her die. I had no childhood. And she died uh, just before my 12th birthday. And after my 12th birthday, my dad, who had a fairly strict curfew, let, would let me stay up and watch movies. And I watched a movie and I watched him cry. And my dad had never cried before, not when my mom was sick, not when she died, not at the funeral. What and movie? It was called Odd Man Out by Sir Carol Reed, uh, starring James Mason about the Irish troubles. And my dad cried. And I got it. Like, I was 12, but I got it. I understood that whatever cards had been dealt my dad and had made it impossible for him in so many ways to fit in and to have to bear certain burdens, that these things called movies had given him a kind of an emotional safe haven that permitted him to cry. And I said to myself, I want to do that. I want to do that. And so both my mother and father are directly involved with what I do for a living, though both are gone. Yeah. Well, that's a nice transition to our questionnaire. 
In the late 19th century, Marcel Proust, most famously the author of A la recherche du temps perdu, popularized a set of questions that became known as a Proust questionnaire. Seemingly benign, the questions nevertheless exposed the most intimate thoughts of his interviewees. Like a week ago, we came up with our own, the fatherly questionnaire, a series of questions which we use to palpate the innermost workings of the fathers before us. It starts off easy, but whoo boy does it get intense right quick. What is your name? Ken Burns. Kenneth Lauren Burns. L-O-R-E-N? L-A-U-R-E-N. There's a McLaurin in my family, but my parents loved Lauren Bacall, so uh, the Mick went off, and I'm Kenneth Lauren Burns. Lots of explaining to do. Yeah. To four daughters. <laughs> Are any of them named Lauren? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Sarah Lucille, Anna Lily, Olivia Grace, and Willa Jane. Are they named after anyone in particular? Um, also, before before we do that, they range in ages from what twenty thirty five in uh, a couple weeks, uh, thirty one in a, in a month, uh, twelve, and seven tomorrow. Oof. And Sarah Lucille is Lucille is my grandmother's name. Uh, Lily, I just love. We don't call her Anna; she's Lily, and it's just. My wife freaked out when she thought that Lily might be a little frivolous, so we added a kind of more serious Anna, which nobody ever uses. And Lily is just the, you know, the lightest name I know. And Olivia Grace, we just love both that. And Willa Jane is named after, uh, she was named after her, her great-grandmother who passed away at 100 but got a chance to know her very, very well. I think all of your... Of course, and there she Sarah is. Lucille is calling at this moment. <laughs> you can take it if you want. Oh, hi, sweetie. I'm in the middle of a radio interview, believe it or not. It's being taped, but I was just talking about you and just saying the words Sarah Lucille uh, because it's a podcast uh, by Papas with Papas. So I'll call. I'll, can I call you back right away? Okay, bye, sweetie. That's my oldest. She'll be 35 next month. Did you feel, so between 7 and 35 is like a range. Did you feel like you went in and out of fatherdom or were, was it like a steady state, like once you're in, you're in? I do two things, I think, really well. And this is a completely subjective thing because I'm me and it's, I'm talking about me. So other people are going to have much clearer answers on that. I'm a pretty good filmmaker and I'm a pretty good dad. And they require the same vigilance. And I've never, I still think of her as my baby. You know, and I'll start to cry because, uh, you know, she's I don't know anyone more remarkable in this world. And I've met queens and kings and Nobel Prize winners and many presidents. I, I don't know anyone more incredible than Sarah Lucille Burns. And um, so that's been an ongoing project uh, for almost 35 years. And uh, Anna Lilly, Lilly will be uh, 31 next month and uh, Olivia will be. 13, a teenager in February, and uh, Willa will be seven tomorrow. I do wonder, as you were talking about one of your strengths as a filmmaker, something you hold dear is your ability to move beyond the duality of something being good or something being bad. And to me, that seems one of the integral parts of being a father as well, that you can't tighten the strings into something that that's good or that's bad because people are just too complicated. You know, peak children, our children need, I believe, two things. One is our love, obviously. Hopefully that's a given. And the other is some form of consistency. You know, 
Are you spoiling your kids? Be consistent about it. Right. Are you strict with your kids? Just be consistent about it. But don't don't waver. And so I've, I've I you know that requires a kind of vigilance. And and I always try not to say no. I like really mean it. Like no, don't go into traffic. You know. Yeah. And and save the nose for the the big stuff. You, you'll fail. You'll fail because it's so easy to say no about everything. Can I have this? No. You know. Right. Can I have an extra piece of cake? No. Rolls but off the tongue. It rolls off the tongue. So you have to find strategies. Um, I, let me let me just withdraw that all and just say I love the job requirement of the filmmaker and the father. I just think that's I was kind of built for that. Everything else, not so much. Yeah. Uh, do you have any cute nicknames for your children? Um, Sarah for a while was Sari, and I was surprised that her mom still calls her that sometimes. I don't. She's just Sarah. And I've had, because we have so many Sarahs, I have to call her Sarah Burns, which her friends think are weird. Yeah. They go, they pull her aside and say, your father calls you Sarah Burns. Why does he call you Sarah Burns? So in that way, yeah. it's a nickname. I mean, I call you Ken Burns. Yeah. Well, the, well, the greatest moment came when Lily was three and a half, just after the Civil War came out. We're walking down from the... Uh, Coliseum Bookstore, which is no more, at 57th and Broadway, and we're between 57th and 56th on the west side of Broadway, and I'm holding her hand, and up ahead, like 30, 40 feet, some people have stopped, and they've recognized me. And she's now, just in the two weeks since the broadcast of the Civil War, realizes this is a whole new world for our family. So she squeezes my hand in warning and says, look, Dada, they want... Ken Burns, all one. This is before don't name names. They want Ken Burns, right? And it was such a beautiful warning. Meaning, to her, I'm Data. To me, I'm me. But she had she knew that there was this other thing called Ken Burns, all one word. Ken Burns, yeah, yeah. Ken Burns seems pretty cool, though. How often do you see them? Uh, well, you know, I work Sarah Burns and her husband David McMahon and I are partners. We work on films together, but they live in New Hampshire and. I mean, I live in New Hampshire and they live in Brooklyn, as does apparently a quarter of the world's population. Everyone who's cool. And now and now recently, my little girls live in Brooklyn, too, and uh, commute to Manhattan when it's my time with them. So it's a rare day that I don't talk to at least three, if not four, of my daughters every single day. And, and with one daughter, it's often two or three times a day because we're, you know, like that. Yeah. Describe yourself as a father in three words. Loving, protective, consistent. Describe your father as a father in three words. Smart, scared, trying. Your mother died when you, eleven. Were, you were 11. Your dad was a still photographer? He was an anthropologist. Still photography was an avocation, which is interesting uh, because a psychologist many, many years after... Uh, my mother's death. I was already a filmmaker. I was probably almost 40. I said to him, you know, I can never remember the date that she died, April 28th. It's always up ahead, and then all of a sudden it's in my rearview mirror. And he said, and I bet as a kid when you blow out the candles on your birthday cake, you wish that she'd come back alive. And I said, yeah, how'd you know? It's the magical thinking of a child. You're still doing it, you know? He said, but what do you think you do for a living? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you wake the dead. You wake the dead. You make Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson come alive. Who do you think you really try, want to wake up? So in many ways, you know, yeah. my job stems, I mean, and I'm an anthropologist like my dad, and I work in film like my dad. And so, you know, it, I am a product of my parents, you know, very definitely. And I spend my life waking the dead. What aspect from your dad beyond the 
vocation and the avocation do you think you really embody? Um, he's the smartest person I know. Uh, he, but he was a Maserati uh, without a clutch. It sat in the driveway. He could go vroom, vroom. He knew everything, knew everything, and just didn't have the way, the tools, the chemistry, whatever you want to call it. And, and I feel very compassionate about him and love him tremendously and miss him. He's been dead since 2001, which was way too early for him as well as my mother, who was way, way, way too early um, to put that stuff into gear. Do you think that's why you you put so much yeah. stuff in gear? I, I don't I don't uh, yeah I, I'm I'm the opposite. You're and a Maserati brother, without the brakes, uh, right? I don't have brakes, and yeah. and uh, and so it's it's true. And I've got six or seven projects always going at once, and I always feel like, you know, what have I done for me lately? You know, Vietnam's over, but I'd rather be putting my head on the pillow, knowing that I had made another film better. And I fortunately have three or four films I'm working on right now that I'm trying to make better right. uh, every day, and so. Um, yeah, no, that that's that's the living manifestation of him, of him. Yeah. What are your weaknesses as a father? Well, I I've noticed with the second bunch that I'm a little bit more impatient and I think I'm manipulative. You know, like I I I think that whatever smartness I might have can get in your way when you try to control events. And so and and that's not that's just a personal problem. But if it's applied to parenthood, then it becomes more important if you're trying to manipulate outcomes. And, I've, and I always try to sort of say, well, it just it's going to be – I tell them it's going to be what it's going to be. See, that's a function of anxiety that I had dating back to watching my mom die. And I've learned some strategies about anxiety and, I'm, and, and I've, I've had – you know, at least a couple of my girls have had it and I've needed to, to be – I needed to give away – every strategy that I knew. And and one of the things is to let go of trying to control right. events and to be a little bit more accepting. It's so super hard. Well, the, to go back to what you're saying about the duality, mm-hmm. you have hyperintelligence on one side, the healthy manifestation, and then you have manipulation on the other. Right. But you can't set, maybe one could, but they're well, I think that's our. That, this is it. It's probably, you know the thing I love about my work and the love about parenthood is it's about process, right? I mean, like when when I finish a film, I mean for you, it's the thing that you watch in your living room and it's done. But that's to me like delivering your child to college. It's yeah, relationship. It's going to change, but it's 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 going to be the same. It's still my child. And so I still have relationships to the very first film I made called Brooklyn Bridge, you know, that, you know, I started in 1977, yeah. 40 years ago. And, and, uh, each one of those films I can tell has a kind of, I mean, I know when my films were born the way I know when my daughters were born. Right. You have Sarah, Lily, Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. What heirloom did your father give to you? If any, he gave me photographs that I've had. He gave me records that it turned out I wanted, um, jazz records that yeah. at the time I was disinterested in as a child of rock and roll and R&B. And then I devoted a, a good deal of my professional life to understanding jazz. And was he like a Coltrane? Dolphin no, guy? I, no he, he was much earlier, simpler stuff, you know, a seemingly simpler stuff of swing and, and 50s uh, jazz. So Ellington and... Shelly Mann and uh, other people that we grew up with were part of the household. Uh, even Bossa Nova stuff, the Getz, Gilberto, Stan Getz, yeah. um, that was there. And and you know, I I worked in a record store as a kid, so I was selling Davis 
Miles Davis and John Coltrane and, and, and other stuff. But it was amazing how much learning about jazz, which came out the year my father died, has, and I'm still, you know, such a jazz aficionado, has kept me, without being the jazzerati, without being kind of snobbish about it, has kept me connected uh, in a way, I guess, to him. Yeah. You know, I, waking the Dead it comes in lots of different fashions, I guess. What heirloom, if any, do you want to leave for your daughters? I, I know only one thing that's true, one equation, and I think it's how actually the equation of the universe, it's... After the break... No, just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but first a word from our sponsors. <laughs> uh, and our time is up. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, so next time, you yeah. know, er, watch out for that bus. Um, this was told to me by a woman that I called my French mother, and her name was Marielle Banku Siegel. And she said, or actually her husband, William Siegel, a great, great man and painter, said to me that my wife said that love multiplies. And um, I actually, I don't know of anything truer than that, that love multiplies. And I've experienced that, and I know how hard it is, and I... Um, see it in society and larger things other than the dynamic of parenthood, which is the most important topic. So you want to leave your daughters a times table, yeah. times tables of love. Yeah, I think, I think it's just that it does multiply. It is in and of itself a multiplying thing. And that's hard for us in, in an acquisitive media uh, computer culture in which we're all independent free agents which are with our devices and we've isolated ourselves and we believe in these dualities with all the fibers of our being. Uh, but it's it's very, very interesting how, how much. I'll give you one stupid example from 25 years ago that just popped into my brain, which is I was driving down Interstate 95 and they used to have tolls every mi- few 15 miles or so and you clunk 50 cents in or 75 cents yeah. or $1.50 or whatever and then they took them out. And I suddenly realized I didn't have exact change for the exact change lane. They didn't have any of this reading of stuff. And so I suddenly had to get over to the right, but it was backed up way. And so I had to actually ask somebody to get in. And it was some guy, and he was beeping his horn and giving me the finger. And clearly the F word was coming out of his mouth. And I was shrugging my soldiers like, you know, what can I do? So I get up there, and I hand the person. I said, I'm paying for me and the guy behind me. And then I took off. And I don't know what compelled me to do that. And I took off and he he had a sports car. He caught up with me in like five or six miles. And he's like giving me the thumbs up sign and hey, brother, you know, like this. And I transformed his day. He went home and told his wife, you know, this guy, he forgot the other part, the ordinariness of us, of which I had too. And I might have just beeped at the guy who needed to come in. And that's love multiplying. Well, this is the thing, right? Earlier you said the Marines just put the finishing touches on what is a killing machine. Yeah. Yeah, true. Okay, I buy that. But also we are people who pay for the person behind us in the sports car and spread love as well. So, so listen, we, we are, I, I hate to break this to you, Uh-oh. none of us are getting out of this alive. None of us are getting, there yeah. is not an, an exception that's going to be made in your case or my case or your case or your case and we're going to live forever, right? Now, that is like the biggest existential bummer there could possibly be. And we could, as a species, with the intelligence that we have, rightfully be sucking our thumbs in a fetal position, right? But we don't. We raise families. We tend gardens. We write symphonies. That's what we also do 
in addition to being not the nicest species on the planet. Describe the dad special for dinner. Oh my goodness! Oh, what I what I cook? Yeah. So I immediately go to uh, a house we have on a lake in New Hampshire, and I'm cooking because that's dads only cook when they're there. I I now have to cook all the time, but uh, it's grilling. And it involves this secret recipe that I stole from a friend and completely appropriated, which is boneless chicken thighs with maple syrup, which makes the sweetest of all meat, boneless chicken thighs, uh, even sweeter. And my kids think it's candy. And I don't mean my little kids, my (laughs) big kids, too. And I'm... I'm I'm a rock star at that moment for the nanosecond it takes them to go, wow, Dad, this is really good. As if, you know, you brought it to them. Yeah, you were the you were the midwife of the chicken <laughs> indeed, indeed. The chicken <laughs> Are you religious, and are you raising your children in that tradition? I am not religious in the uh, agreed upon acceptable thing. We don't go to church. We don't have catechisms. We don't do things. Um, but I believe in a higher power, and I have communicated that to my kids, some of whom grown accept or don't accept that. Um, I fundamentally believe that one plus one uh, in the rational world always equals two, but the thing that actually interests us is where one and one equals three, and that comes from art, it comes from sex, it comes from relationships, it comes from love, particularly of children, and it, it comes from faith. And... Um, I'm interested in that. When we say that the whole was greater than the sum of the parts, it means the sum of the parts came up to here and the whole's here. And what's the difference there? That's the three. You know, I mean, I, I my first child was born with a midwife, speaking of which. First two kids were born with a midwife. And there was an interesting thing. The door was closed to my bedroom and there were three people in the room. And then there were four and the door never opened. It's the best moment of my life. Final question. Besides saying it, how do you let your children know that you love them? Well, I think the first and obvious one is touch. Like I, we, we're pretty touchy-feely. Um, we call it hudging and mudging in my family. We're just always, <laughs> we're always touching and holding each other and, and things like that. And, and there's a kind of intimacy. And it, it can happen. You know, my, my big girls, when they were little, um, after every dinner they would get and get out of their seats and, and sit on my lap, you know, until it was really kind of <laughs> hard to juggle these two girls, you know, preteens and teenagers yeah. on my lap, both of them, one on each leg. And um, that's heaven to me. So I think it's it's touch and also just it's I, I never want them to ever think I am not there. And I think they know that I am there, that I am. I will always be there always be there, whatever they need, and I would do anything uh, for them. I feel like we could have a 10-hour series called the Ken Burns and I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> bring it, bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> on fatherhood. But this was wonderful. Thank you so much for stopping by. It's wonderful for me. Thank you for having me. Of course. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by TLC. When a teenager gets pregnant, it becomes a family affair. TLC's new series, Unexpected, explores the ups and downs of three pregnant teens who are all children of teen mothers themselves. Parents and grandparents must step in and help them through this huge life change. Tensions mount as everyone has conflicting ideas for what is best for the young parents and their baby. Don't miss the revealing new series, Unexpected, Sunday, November 12th at 10, 9 central on TLC and TLC Go.
Can't wait until November 12th? You can watch the early premiere starting on Sunday, November 5th with the TLC Go app. Download TLC Go for free from your app store. Welcome back to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. The thing about having kids is you have a lot of conversations with your own kids, but not that many with other people's kids. And most of the conversations you're having with your own kid is you telling them what to do or what not to do. But kids have a lot to say. Well, they have a lot of words to say. And it's really fun. So every week on the podcast, I'll be talking to a different kid from around the world about what's going on in their lives. The first kid we're visiting is named Joey, and she actually lives around the corner from me in Brooklyn. So join me and Joey in the lounge for an in-depth conversation on nothing. Why don't you start by introducing yourself? My name is Joey. How old are you, Joey? Six and a half. Tell me how first grade is going. Well, it's going good. I really like my teachers, and I really like math. It's just fun. I have a friend, August. She's really nice, but really wacky. (laughs) How is she wacky? Like, whenever she sees something she, like, really likes. Yeah. Um, she goes like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping I could ask you about your dad. What's your favorite thing to do with him? Go bike riding with him. Oh, really? I know how to ride a two-wheeler. And your dad or mom helped you? My dad. What was it like learning from him? Well, Is he patient? Is he, you know, nice? Very or... patient. <laughs> yeah. When I didn't have Owen, I said I wanted like a, a brother or sister. But when I got him when he was a baby, I said I didn't want him anymore. <laughs> it's so weird. Could you tell me any jokes? Do you have any jokes? Knock knock. Who's there? Banana. Banana who? Banana. Knock knock. Who's there? Banana. Banana who? Knock, knock. Who's there? Banana. Banana who? Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Orange, you glad I didn't say banana? <laughs> that is and a really I good I have one. another really funny one. Okay, that, I don't know if you can beat that one. That one's really good. But go on. Yeah, but it's funny. Um, knock, knock. Who's there? Boo. Boo who? <laughs> the Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by Hum by Verizon. No one wants to be stranded on the side of the road, especially when you have little ones in the car. But since a road is an unpredictable place, it helps to have Hum by Verizon, the connected car system that assists and empowers drivers. Now you can check your car's health from your phone. And if you have questions, you can connect to a mechanics hotline for expert, unbiased advice and even get quotes on repairs. Need help on the road? Hum works with a nationwide network of mechanics and can send a tow truck out to your location. And if Hum detects a crash, it can automatically notify emergency services. It's a smart way to stay on top of your car's health and keep your family safer on the road. Get Hum and get where you're going. Learn more at hum.com. Welcome back to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. 
It's a late afternoon, and I just got home from daycare pickup. I drop off the book bags and start making a snack. It's carrots and peanut butter, again. It's noticeably quiet in the living room, so I saunter out to check on the kid. And there it is, my three-year-old sitting in front of the mirror, transfixed by his own image. The little Narcissus reaches out his hand to touch his face on the surface. A hand reaches out to meet his. The carrot sticks languish, but I care not, for I am witnessing, I think, the first discovery of self. All parents, if they're lucky, catch a moment like this, and it's great, not only because it's cute, but because it's a window into the human mind. At some point, we all get there. Yeah, we exist. We are ourselves. In this episode of Oh Hey Science, with our hirsute science editor, Josh Krish, we walk through how we come to discover that we are the man in the mirror. Josh, what was happening in my kid's mind at that moment? At around three years old, your kid was about halfway there. So when a child first encounters a mirror, they have this early stage where they basically just know that it's a mirror and aren't exactly sure what's going on in it. And by the time they grow up, by the time they're adults, they know that this is a mirror that I can groom in and recognize that I'm going to touch the thing on my face that I see in the mirror. But the journey there is actually a a tricky one. There are five developmental stages from the point where I recognize a mirror for the first time until I get all the way to adulthood and I'm ready to use a mirror. Unfortunately, we miss what they call stage zero. Researchers from Emory have listed all of these out. Back in 2003, they put it together in proper form. Stage zero is what happens when a bird flies into your window. Ouch. That is, yeah, that's total, I do not the know what a mirror stage, is. Yeah. We call it the ouch stage, or, the, or really the oh my god, what is that stage? You know sometimes you're like walking past the bathroom, and you catch yourself in the mirror, and you're not sure it's a mirror, and you freak out? Yeah. You're yeah like, that's who's stage- that handsome guy? <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> <laughs> that's what goes through my I mind. I guess that's what happens to you. <laughs> For me, it's like, ah! Um, and then I look in the mirror, and it's like a confirmed, ah! Yeah. Uh, but then at least I know what I'm looking at. So that's called stage zero. Humans, we don't believe anymore. We used to think humans went through this, that babies initially didn't know what they were seeing, didn't know it was a mirror. We now know that basically as soon as you're born, when you see a mirror, you're aware that's not the world, that's something else. But what exactly is going on in there is where stage one starts. Stage one is when you first realize that a mirror is able to reflect things. That's where we find most infants, that they recognize that this is not just a window. It's not just a shiny surface. This is something else, and I can't go through it, and it's not going to come and get me. So the terror of being a bird flying in a window is basically skipped by children. Uh, Level two we call situation. That's the first time that we understand that what's happening in the mirror is linked to the movements in my body. You could call this a sort of proto-self-awareness. I realize that if I move my hand, that makes the person in the mirror move their hand. So it's you control it, but that thing isn't you yet. Exactly. It's something that I have power over, but I still haven't identified it as me. So it's not really identity, but it's the first time I'm functionally using a mirror. So it's a moment. That could have been where your kid was. Because your kid reached forward and touched the mirror and saw that that caused the mirror to touch their hand. And he was like, what? Right. So that's like a control. It might have been what we call level two. Although at three, he was probably beginning to get toward level three, which is identification. This is one of the creepier parts. This is when you recognize that the person in the mirror is not another person. That's probably me. The reason why this area is creepy, level three and level four, those two areas get a little creepy because they don't happen all at once. It's spotty. Right. You don't wake up one morning sure that that's me in the mirror. You wake up one morning sometimes sure that's me in the mirror. And this is what I call the Jessica experiment. Why? Because a poor girl named Jessica was subject to an experiment like this, and it's on the literature. Oh, poor Jessica. Poor Jessica. It'll drive you crazy. And it's also, it's going to give you nightmares. It gave me nightmares after I read this study. It sounds like something out of a horror movie. Tell me. So there's this little girl named Jessica. I think she was three or four. 
and the researchers had her sit on a stool and put they put a, a sticky note on her face. Sounds haunting. Well, that's not scary yet. And they took a video of her and they had her like singing a song or doing something while she had the sticky note on her face. And then they put her in another room and they had her watch the video of herself. They wanted to see if she was self-aware. So they asked her, what do you see? And so she's watching herself sitting on a stool with a post-it note on her face. So she goes, I see Jessica. And they said, great. What else do you see? And she goes, Jessica has a, has a sticky note on her face. And they said, great, you're doing it. And then she looks at them and goes, why is Jessica wearing my dress? It's something that researchers are calling the me but not me dilemma. It's a weird time in our lives where it's kind of us, but we're not ready to take it lock, stock, and barrel. I recognize that's me, but I'm in denial about the fact that that's really me in a permanent way. In stage three and four, we go between identification and stage four, which is permanence. Stage four is when I recognize that that's me in the mirror, and that's always me in the mirror, and when I leave the mirror, I'm still me. That is pretty close to full-on self-awareness. I recognize that when I'm in the mirror, that person's me, and when I leave and go elsewhere, that's also what I am. But it's not the final stage. The final stage is where we have problems. Stage five. Stage five. Self-consciousness, not self-awareness. It's when I realize that not only is that me, that's the me that everybody else sees too. Yeah, there was a study you mentioned in Papua New Guinea about stage five. So with adults who have never seen mirrors before, they don't go through the stages. They jump straight to stage five. So clearly this is a this is a developmental thing where as we get older, we attain the capability to understand this is us. But they found some tribesmen in, in Papua New Guinea who had never seen a mirror, just as intelligent as anybody else. So they didn't have to go through the stages, but they'd never seen one. They showed them the mirror and they jumped straight to stage five. And the result was just absolute crippling horror. They doubled over. They, they the, the researchers described that their stomach muscles moved in tension. They couldn't believe that was them. Well, I think the thing that really resonated to me about the reaction is their faces remained impassive, but their stomachs expressed emotion, like they're, they were tensing and untensing and yeah, were genuinely this, horrified. Yeah, it was this real visceral reaction that, oh my God, is that what everybody else sees? And that's kind of the baggage we carry throughout our lives, right? We all are stuck at stage five where we recognize that not only is that me in the mirror and not only can I see me, they all see me and they're all looking at me and oh my God. You know, a couple of things jump out at me about realizing self-awareness, realizing the self exists also seems to coincide with at age three and four, a real exertion of will, the ability to say no and rebelliousness. When we talk to dietary consultants or nutrition consultants or sleep consultants and potty training consultants particularly say, do that stuff before age three, because before then they don't have a developed sense of ego. So they're not going to be rebelling as much. After that, they're saying, oh, I can say no. There's an I. There's an I to say no. And I will say no. Yeah, besides testing the mirror, there's a bunch of indicators around that stage that they're starting to develop a sense of self distinct from everything else. The strongest one's language. The simple desire to communicate with another person so that you're understood is a degree of self-awareness that I recognize that I'm me and that's another person and they won't know what I want unless I speak to them on their terms, language. So even the early development of language, which happens right around that stage too, is linked to this self-awareness. It's just easier to track in a mirror. Right. Speaking about the mirror... Something that's so interesting to me is, so that was, Jessica was a video. A lot of the stuff is about a mirror, which obviously predates video in terms of technology. But these days, you know, I can't tell you how many times I'm on the subway and I see like a mom or dad with their cell phone uh, looking in Snapchat. And I do it and my wife does it too. Looking in Snapchat with our kid and we have like doggy ears and like a, a tongue coming out. And I just imagine when the kid's like three, two or three, just going through this 
it must freak them the fuck out that like, do they have doggy ears? Is this what's going on? It's totally possible that they have more Jessica moments nowadays than we used to. There are no studies to my knowledge on whether we have more what I'm calling Jessica moments and what proper researchers would call a me but not me moment if we have more of them now. I don't know. It would be like a me but not me plus doggy ears. Right. Me but not me all the time and constantly changing. I mean, at least it used to be when you looked in a mirror, it was a consistent uh, anomaly. Now exactly. it's, uh, I might be a doggy tomorrow. I don't know how that affects anything, but it sure is creepy. And I think the other thing that's been so interesting about this process of self-awareness is later on, you know, when you become adults and, and develop some sort of altruism or compassion or sympathy or empathy, you realize that you kind of have to undo a lot of the sense of a solid, permanent, unchanging self. Is it just necessary that you need to go through the delusion of self to undo it later in life? I don't know if science recognizes self as a delusion, you know? Um, it's a it's a little bit more theoretical, right? Sure, but I, in terms of interdependence and um, altruism and the interconnectedness of of all of us, people who have a very strong sense of self, narcissism essentially, and that they are always themselves and that doesn't change, seems to harden people. So they don't act in altruistic, compassionate ways. I obviously have no clue what the answer is to your question from a scientific standpoint, but I can speculate based on the studies that I've seen. And what I would guess is that the raw material for both being someone with empathy and somebody who does not have empathy all appear around stage five. Because in order to be somebody who has empathy, you need to recognize that you're a self in order to recognize that there are other selves and that we're all one great self that needs to work together. There has to be um, some framework. Right. If you think that there's nobody, including me, nothing exists at all and mirrors are just shiny surfaces that you can fly into, if you're early on in the stages of self-awareness, you're not capable of empathy either. So I imagine that what happens is at stage five, you're given the raw materials to be somebody who has empathy or lacks it because you're given the gift of self. And once you have the gift of self, it's not a me but not me anymore. I know that that's me and I know that things evolve and that people have selfhood too. Then you spend the rest of your life deciding how you're going to use that. As we keep on saying in all of these sort of segments is that when it comes to deciding whether you're going to be an empathetic person, whether your child is going to grow up with empathy, that comes down to the behaviors that they see from their parents. Is my parent somebody who recognizes self and uses that to understand other people better? Or is my parent somebody who turns selfhood into self-focus? Right. Self-awareness versus solidification and grasping of self. Right. That's all up to the parent. How your child is going to use self after stage five is your job. Whether they're going to get from zero to five, that seems to have very little to do with you. And it's better to have self than not, or you just keep on flying into mirrors and windows. We definitely don't want that, because as you said, ouch. <laughs> well, that's a good place to leave it for, oh, hey, science, with Josh. Thank you. Thanks, Joshua. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by ADT. Home isn't just a place. It's a feeling. The feeling that you're safe to enjoy the things that matter most. ADT lets you take that feeling with you wherever you go. Whether you are at your house, your business, or online, ADT helps keep you safe and secure with security systems, home automation, alarms, and surveillance, so you can feel at home wherever you are. Not sure where to start? Try the new ADT Security Starter Kit for only $49, including professional installation. Learn more at ADT.com. ADT. Home safe home. And now for what they call the small print. Let me bump this up to 12 point. 36-month monitoring contract required. Enrollment in QSP and EasyPay required. Only in select markets. Done. So that's it for security. Now back to my own insecurities with the Fatherly Podcast. 
Welcome back to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. A man with kids, a man with opinions. A man whose kids have opinions. We're in the part of the show called Fatherly Endorsement. No money has changed hands, it's just something that we're really into, and we think you might like too. What I'm going to talk about has two strikes against it to begin with. First of all, I'm opposed on principle to parents dressing their kids identical to themselves. It's like, you already have your genetic seed out there, what more narcissistic reflection of that do you need? Bathing suits, identical t-shirts, dress shirts, it just irks me. So put that in one bucket of objection. The other half of that basket of deplorable is products named after puns. It's like, it looked good on the whiteboard, don't make it a reality. However, for the last year or so, I've been wearing a pair of Allbird Runners. Allbirds is a San Francisco-based company founded last year that makes very simple, soft, kind of modern wool sneakers. One of the guys who founded it, Tim Brown, played football, which is soccer, for New Zealand, is super handsome, charismatic, he's a cool dude, became obsessed with merino wool, I don't know, worked with Mills or some shit, and created just an amazing sneaker, which is soft and it's durable and you can wash it, which is great because my feet stink all the time. Anyway, Allbirds just came out with a line of small Allbirds, and I think you can see where I'm going with this, called Smallbirds. They're pretty much identical to the adult version. They come in red, blue, and gray and look just like what I wear. So on one hand, I don't want my son to look just like me from the ankles down. On the other hand, why deprive them of my favorite shoe? Smallbirds cost around $55. They're available on allbirds.com, and they also have two uh, stores, one in San Francisco, one here in New York. You also get a children's book with every pair you buy. The other founder, who's not that handsome New Zealand guy, Joey Zwillinger, he wrote a kid's book called Sadie Shaves the Day. <laughs> it's about Sadie the Sheep. I can't vouch for the quality of the kid's book. I can vouch for the quality of the shoes. So hereby, heretofore, forevermore, Fatherly endorses small birds. So that's it for us. Join us next time on the Fatherly Podcast. Today's show was produced by Kelly Kramer. The theme music is by Kyle Forrester, with vocals by Augie Heerenstein. Special thanks to Josh Krish, Andrew Berman, and the rest of the team at Fatherly. For more Fatherly content, follow us on Facebook at Fatherly HQ. For my random thoughts on life, poor usage of hashtags, and mildly witty dad jokes, follow me on Twitter at FakeJoshStein. Be sure to subscribe to the Fatherly Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app, and stay tuned for updates on upcoming episodes.